Welcome to Homestead Gardening in the Texas Gulf Coast with Kristen Howard. Hello, winter. Just about every inch of the United States was hit with an Arctic blast of cold air last week, and gardeners scrambled to make the best decisions for their plants, covering some and leaving others to fend for themselves. While edible gardens and subtropical or tropical plants may have needed extra protection, gardeners suited for a wide range of climate stressors, including freezing weather, were ready to battle out the old-fashioned way without a gardener's support. And isn't that what we really want as gardeners? Less work? Of course we do. In this podcast episode, I'll share with you why storms from the north are so much more dangerous for our gardens this time of year than a regular winter freeze, how to prepare your plants for environmental stressors, and how to help them recover afterwards, or what to look for to determine if your plant is going to survive into the next season. For the past couple decades, the buzz phrase in ornamental landscape gardening has been drought tolerant and native plants. But drought tolerance doesn't do you any favors in a freeze, and Texas has so many different growing regions that a Texas native plant may not be suited for your area. In this episode, I'll introduce you to alternative ornamental shrubs, including native and adapted plants that are extremely freeze tolerant, some perennials to consider, how to care for deciduous plants or woody perennials in cold weather, and which drought tolerant plants you should actually avoid in the Houston area and why. Let's talk about the weather. No, we're not having an innocuous conversation about the weather. We're talking real talk here. When the entire country gets a blast of cold air, it does hurt everyone, but it hurts southern climates and our plants even more. First, plants like to acclimate to cooler or hotter weather, and in fall, most plants are allowed to go into dormancy slowly so they can adjust from the cooling temperatures into freezing temperatures. That dormancy reduces the plant's chance of being damaged in a freeze. So what happens when our plants can't acclimate in time for a freeze? They may not have the ability to protect themselves from erratic changes in temperatures. And in Houston's case, we may have 80 degree weather one week and the very next week we have fallen below freezing or worse. We may have a wind chill on top of freezing temperatures. It's actually a combination of rapid changes in temperature over the course of just 24 to 48 hours, usually 12 hours, instead of a few weeks of slow change and a fast moving storm bringing extreme wind chill that causes so much damage to plants in southern climates. As a gardener, the best way to navigate which plants you should protect by covering them or bring them indoors is to research the hardiness zone of each of your plants and to compare the lowest temperature range of that plant's hardiness zone to the weather predictions and the wind chill expectations if they are dramatically lower than the expected low temperature. High winds not only damage the plant with cooler air, but they can damage your protection plans as well. For my garden, some of my covers tend to get ripped in high winds or my fastenings are just undone. Rapid cooling may cause some structures like my cold frame greenhouse to contract, which causes the doors to pop open and allow cold air in. In my case, this year the weather dropped so quickly that my cold frame greenhouse with a space heater inside could not heat up fast enough. The space heater was added a day before, but the heat generated by that space heater warming up and trying to fill up that greenhouse 
actually caused the automated top vents to pop open and allowing all that heat to escape. By the time the vents could close, as the air began to cool outside, the space heater couldn't keep up with the rapid cooling of the surrounding outside air. With more time, the space heater could have worked properly and the cold frame greenhouse wouldn't have needed any additional covering or heating element. But unfortunately, it's that fast approaching storm that causes so much damage. Winds and wind chill can cause additional problems that are not expected. If a winter storm doesn't bring rain along with it, or if freezing weather keeps you from watering your plants before this event, cold winds can mean dry air and dry soil. If you have freezing weather for many days after this event, the root zone of your plants will remain dry. Without water to insulate the plant roots, the freezing weather can damage the roots of your plants, dry out top leaves, and make recovering very, very challenging or sometimes impossible depending on the type of plant. The best thing you can do as a gardener is know about your plants. Which ones will return from the roots? Which are native plants? which are deciduous, which means they lose their leaves in winter but remain woody and don't actually die after a cold snap but look dead, and which are subtropical or tropical and require extreme measures to be taken to protect them. It may take three to six months before you find out which plants are still alive, especially if they are warm season perennials or deciduous plants that look dead. After an extreme weather event, I recommend you ask yourself, not if you could have done more to protect your plants, but if you could have done less. Later in this episode, I'm going to recommend a list of ornamental plants that handle extreme freezing temperatures. If you lose ornamental garden plants that can't return after a freeze, consider these as substitutions so you can start gardening smarter and not harder. In your edible garden, try pairing plants that have similar growing conditions near each other so they're easier to cover or grow varieties that are better suited to cold weather. An earlier podcast episode shares my top citrus plant varieties that can survive colder weather. Try growing cover crops that handle cold weather conditions like hairy vetch. Or consider growing edible or fruiting plants that don't require covers at all, like pineapple guava or Asian persimmon. Another suggestion is to harvest as much of your edible plants as possible before a freeze instead of covering them. This is the most affordable option, practical, and takes about as much time as covering. You can freeze your greens or herbs quickly to save yourself time and just worry about what to do with those greens later. I pair similar foods together in baggies like all my brassica plants separate from all my radish tops because these plants will have different stir fry cook times when they are unfrozen. And I don't even worry about washing and drying those leaves until after they come out of the freezer just to make my life easier. The best way to prepare your plants for stressors like extreme heat or cold is to keep them healthy. Fertilizing is one way to help your plants, but fertilizing tends to promote the growth of something on the plant and that doesn't necessarily promote health. That something is usually the growth of leaves or the growth of flowers and subsequently fruit or seeds. If your plant is expending too much energy producing that something, it may not have enough energy to care for itself. So before investing in traditional fertilizer, start feeding your plant's root system. Use organic compost or liquid microbial options that can feed the soil and the roots, promote the health of the plant roots, and increase your plant's chance of surviving other stressors. By equipping your plant with tools for its own success, you will reduce your garden chores more and more over each season. 
my schedule for fertilizing, composting, and adding microbials looks something like this. In January, I boost my vegetable garden with small little boosts using liquid fish fertilizer, but no fertilizer to any of my dormant ornamental plants or fruiting plants. This schedule continues into February, March, and April for the vegetable garden. Dormant plants get a boost with EM1 liquid microbes only. In the mid to end of February, the rose garden, fruit trees, and any other woody plant, whether it's evergreen or dormant and deciduous, gets an organic dry blend of fertilizer, compost, and a tonic of root support with microbes such as the liquid EM1, and I usually add in some liquid fish as the plants start budding out with new growth. Because that time frame into February tends to be at the end of our last frost for the year, in the Houston area, that's when I'm expecting new buds. If your location has a different time frame, then schedule yourself accordingly. This dry fertilizer is not a pellet fertilizer, which seems to take forever to start working even if it's organic. You can use my rose fertilizer recipe found on my blog in order to find out the blend that I use for most of my plants. You can find all this information in the episode description. In March, before new warm season plants are planted, in March, before my new warm vegetable season plants are actually planted, the vegetable garden gets topped with compost. Also in March through May, all plants get a boost with liquid microbes and liquid fish. Ornamental gardens, fruiting plants, roses, you name it. But my summer vegetables also get a blend of the same dry fertilizer. Because the dry rose fertilizer recipe pushes rose blooms and supports healthy leaf, bloom, and seed production, it's also great for my vegetable garden and many other fruiting plants. In June through August, my plants just get a chance to recover. Fruiting plants already have enough support to keep the fruit, but sometimes I add a little more support at this time, usually in compost or in root support. I primarily focus on that root support with EM1 and sometimes leaf growth support, but only occasionally, depending on how the summer's going. Midsummer or late summer, I may even add compost to my plants if we have a really dry season. Compost works better than excessive watering or mulch to retain moisture and improves the plant's health. In September, the same plants that were fertilized with dry fertilizer in February will be fertilized once again with the same blend. September through November repeats the steps of March through May with a liquid microbe and liquid fish boost, especially for those new cool season vegetables added to the garden. If warm season vegetable plants are still producing, they can usually carry on with some liquid microbe tonics and compost additions through fall. December offers a little liquid microbe support and liquid fish to the vegetable garden, but for the most part, plants are going dormant at this time in the ornamental and fruiting gardens and should not be asked to keep growing. By backing off your plants at the right times when they really need that break, you can also reduce their stress. When the plant stress is reduced, you're going to prevent damage that may happen otherwise. By learning about your plants, you will eventually know when to leave them alone and when you must intervene. Before freeze, you can use leaves and mulch to protect the roots of your plants. Mulching is more effective in winter, in my opinion, than in summer for plant roots. Water your plant's root zone if you did not have natural rainfall before a freeze, and then winterize your irrigation system or your hose bibs so they don't burst during the freeze. You can do this by a slow drip in your faucet, or for your irrigation system, you want to make sure that you bleed the pipes so they no longer have 
any pressurized water in the pipes. After a stressful event like a freeze, it's important to know when you should intervene, if at all. Remove any gooey leaves like succulent leaves or tender perennials that did not survive the freeze. This decay can cause more damage to your plants than good. Some of these plants may return from the roots, so wait until spring to find out which plants lived. For any dormant plant, which includes deciduous plants that are supposed to lose their leaves and perennials that die back this time of year, these plants will return in spring when they're supposed to. Leave your deciduous plants alone, but you can cut your perennial plants down to about 3 inches to 6 inches from the ground so the debris is out of the way for next year's growth. Evergreen plants can be left alone too, or if your low temperatures have returned to a stable temperature above 40 degrees, you can trim your plants this winter. I always want to make sure I'm trimming my evergreen plants at the least likely time that they will be growing. I also like to give my plants a couple weeks after a hard freeze before bothering them again, especially with heavy pruning. And I want to make sure a freeze is coming right after I prune my plants. So make sure you take a look at the weather before you plan this chore. Avoid pruning deciduous plants until spring though, because you may not know for sure which branches are looking their best and which ones actually have died. You can also prune evergreen trees at this time of year when the trees are dormant. In Houston, you want to wait till about mid-February before you start pruning any of your deciduous trees or shrubs. That's going to be about the last frost for the area. You also want to make sure that you wrap up pruning for deciduous or evergreen trees in about a month after last frost. So at the end of March should be your last chance to do this heavy pruning chore. This makes sure that you're not cutting into that growing time in spring for your plants but you're also not opening the plant up to a lot of pests and diseases in the warmer season. It's a small window of time for about a month for those deciduous trees, roses, and stone fruit, but you have several dormant months of late fall through winter and early spring to prune those evergreen plants. Does anyone else hear buzzing? As a landscape designer for over a decade, the buzz from clients is that they want native and drought-tolerant plants in their landscapes. Back in the day, the word xeriscape or zeroscape was getting thrown around a lot, meaning people wanted plants with zero maintenance in their landscape. But the same clients wanted an impressive yard that looked impeccably maintained with flowering plants. Now, if you paid attention to my fertilizing and micro-brute support schedule from month to month, Earlier in this episode, you'll notice how frequently I'm maintaining and supporting my plants. It's not a lot of work compared to trying to nurture a sick plant back to health, but it's not zero maintenance either, making zero scape or low maintenance yards very challenging. Supporting blooms on plants also takes a lot of money and time and a healthy plant that's fertilized. Growing healthy plants takes money and time in and of itself. Managing extreme stressors for your plants takes pre- and post-planning. More importantly, you'll soon learn that native plants are scrappy. That's why they work so well in the climates they are naturally found in. It's also why native plants are usually the last choice for homeowners. Native plants can look kind of messy on their own, but a low-maintenance native landscape is supposed to look like you just stumbled upon nature. Now let's tackle that phrase, drought-tolerant. For a plant to be drought-tolerant, can it also be tolerant of soggy or excessively wet soils? Usually not. For a large portion of Texas, especially the other major cities besides Houston, drought-tolerant plants grow fairly well. 
Those areas of the state don't have hurricane or tropical storms to contend with, and in fact, they don't have a lot of water at all. So drought tolerance is very important to those areas. In the Gulf Coast, drought tolerant plants aren't an asset. We have plenty of natural rainfall, but we can also have drought summers and rain events that dump on us over a week or more. We need scrappy plants, ones that can handle some drought, some rain, and now some freezes. What happens to a plant that can just handle drought but not heavy rain and freezing weather? Well, it dies. The following list of mostly native and a few adaptive plants are better suited for Houston's wild weather than others. This list has my better recommendations, how to use the plants in the landscape, which type of landscape they are best suited for, and which plants are native but not the best choice, and some alternative suggestions. Not every native plant is considered on this list. Some plants are more challenging to find commercially, and for that reason, they've been excluded. Others are more popular in certain areas of Texas or have an adapted plant alternative that is better. And in that case, neither is mentioned, so we can focus on the more native plants that are good options instead of adapted alternatives. I do include one favorite adapted plant that I still highly recommend and wish more people used in Houston, and you'll find out why soon. Native Plants for Houston In this section, I'll be talking about a few of my favorite natives, including red yucca, yopon holly, turk's cap, palmetto palms, American beautyberry, silver ponyfoot, frog fruit, and a wide range of perennials. Red yucca is a top favorite for me as a designer. Red yucca likes to mind its own business, and that's probably why it's high up on my list as an ornamental garden option for Houston. Rain, shine, shade, heat, drought, freeze, nothing stops this plant from staying green in the garden. As a bonus, the thick grass-shaped blades of the red yucca create an interesting garden texture, and the occasional spike of red-pink flowers is a hummingbird magnet. So, who should grow this plant? Well, if you want a plant that never requires trimming, is highly adaptable to various conditions, then this is the right one for you. This is a great option for gardeners that strive to grow an Autobahn stop for migrating hummingbirds, and you'll hear more plant suggestions in this episode to support migration times. Another plant that is becoming higher up on the list than it was 20 years ago for me is Yopon Holly and Dwarf Yopon Holly. A well-known native plant to Texas, there was a time when the yopon holly tree and dwarf yopon holly was so overused that gardeners grew too tired of it to use again. Recently, the dwarf yopon holly is making a comeback and replacing the Japanese boxwood in formal gardens because the boxwood is succumbing to illness very quickly with no warning or treatment option. I personally like dwarf yopon holly as a landscape shrub option now because it's very small and slow growing. This may not seem like an advantage, but if you are looking for a shrub that is evergreen, low to no maintenance, drought tolerant, heat tolerant, sun and shade tolerant, and tolerant of native poor soils, well, you really can't find a better option. Did I mention it attracts birds, but is not grazed on by most animals, unless of course you have a silly dog that eats everything? The tree form yopon is most often found in older homes with 1990s landscapes or more naturally, it's found in areas along fence lines or as an understory tree because it's often left as a volunteer plant by birds that are eating and spreading berry seeds. Yopon holly is given a bad rap over time due to its scientific name, Ilex vomitoria. 
A very long time ago, the leaves were used in extremely large quantities to induce vomiting and native rituals. And this name, Ilex vomitoria, was attached to the plant forever once it was scientifically pieced together. I have actually no idea which scientist discovered all of this, but obviously he thought attaching this name was fun. And it was for a long time until I learned a little bit more about the Yobun holly. Because I later found out that when the leaves are prepared correctly and brewed in appropriate quantities, they contain caffeine. The cousin of Yopan Holly is commercially sold as yerba mate, and you'll often find this ingredient in specialty tea blends. So who should plant this? Well, I personally think I've given excellent reasons already as to why you should grow Yopan or dwarf Yopan, but this plant is great for low to no maintenance landscapes, native scapes, xeriscapes, and it's great for bird lovers. As a bonus, add it to your tea garden in tree form as a natural shade canopy tree for herbs and as a caffeinated tea option that is easier to grow than the traditional Asian tea leaf plant, Camellia sinensis. Turk's cap is a crowd-pleasing favorite. If you've ever heard of hibiscus, then you're familiar with the shape and general growing conditions of Turk's cap. Hibiscus and many other plants are part of the mallow family along with Turk's cap. Some prefer full sun, while others grow more successfully in full shade. As a general rule, the more rainfall a climate has in Texas and more cloudy days, the more likely you can grow Turk's cap in some sun. But the plant is most successful when it's at least protected from hot western afternoon sun during the hottest time of year. In shade, this plant is drought tolerant. The plant's health and flowering tend to increase during two main times of year, which both coincide with the hummingbird migration in spring and fall, as if it was made for this bird. And well, nature says it is. It's no coincidence that hummingbird plants look their finest during migration season. Turk's cap is known as a perennial plant in most climates, growing from the roots beginning in spring and dying during the first freeze of winter. In warm winters, Houston has seen native Turk's cap grow through winter and into the following year up to 12 feet to 16 feet tall with canes that arch over under the weight. But usually this plant maximizes its growth between 6 feet to 8 feet tall in a single growing year. Turk's cap is easily grown from seed. So if you want to prevent the spread, collect the pods at the end of the season between October and December. Or to spread this plant, Toss seed pods out in December and allow nature to take its course for the following season. Palms get such a bad rap along with so many of these native plants, but that's because people have not discovered palmetto palms. Most of the palms in the Houston area or that are used in Texas landscapes at all are palms that are tropical or subtropical that die in freezes. And if you've had to remove a stump from a palm tree, well, let's just say it's either cost you a lot of money or you were not able to finish that job. As a landscape designer, it is my job to tell my clients what works best for their property. And I tend to direct my clients towards windmill palms and palmetto palms. The most popular landscape palmetto used is actually the dwarf palmetto palm, which can be used like a small shrub and maintained between four foot to six foot tall and wide by simply removing fronds at the base when the plant grows larger than desired. The dwarf silver palmetto is an expensive but beautiful alternative to the classic dwarf palmetto green coloring. Standard palmetto palms are a great option for palm trees in Houston because they handle our freezes, unlike the subtropical and tropical palms imported to the area. So who should plant this? 
anyone that wants a Mediterranean or tropical feel add to their landscape with low risk that the plant's going to freeze. You can also use the dwarf palm to create a striking visual by planting the shrub palm in a single backdrop row behind smaller textured or flowering plants. American Beautyberry is a hit or miss plant for some people, but it remains on my list for a few reasons. Now this plant isn't a first choice for an organized ornamental garden, but it's a great fit as an understory plant for a natural landscape that primarily entertains wildlife. You'll usually find beautyberry at parks under shady oaks and pines or along fence lines dropped off by birds. These plants are hard to spot among the scrub, but bright fall purple berries are a dead giveaway to identify this plant. So who should plant this? Bird lovers have got to get in line. You have to have this plant along with your yopon holly to have a great start at creating a bird habitat. Throw in some grasses and other perennials you plan to leave the seed heads on all season and you are on your way to a chipper year-round stop for migratory birds. And speaking of grasses, if you want to try your hand at grasses in the Houston area, you may have a small challenge. But some of my favorites include gulf muley grass and as long as these are planted in full sun with well-draining soil, they work just fine for the Houston area. I also like Mexican feathergrass. They aren't a great fit, again, if they're in shade or in poor soils, but again, like the Gulf Mealy, just make sure they're in draining areas and they have plenty of sun and they'll be just fine. A grass that's really hard to find for some reason commercially but looks amazing is called inland sea oats. The tiny little seeds on this inland sea oat plant are amazing in the landscape and great for your migratory birds. If you're looking for a native ground cover, consider silver ponyfoot, also known as silver dichondra. I promise you've seen dichondra before. It's the green weed that you sometimes find in your lawn that you may or may not mistake for silver dollar weed. It's actually a native plant and the commercial, more beautiful spreader actually has silver foliage called silver dichondra or silver ponyfoot. This is a perennial ground cover that loves sun and heat and is extremely drought tolerant. If you are willing to accept that a weed is actually a native plant, try this out in your ornamental garden or in pots as a trailing plant. Because its roots grow along the ground as it grows, it's unlikely you will kill this plant unless it's growing in too much shade, but it also is easily removed if you no longer desire it. Another favorite ground cover is frog fruit, and it has similar growing conditions to dichondra mentioned previously. It's also a great option for a ground cover in place of grass. Although it does die back in other climates, it's usually evergreen in the Houston area. Perennials in general are great options for Houston and many areas of Texas for one reason. These plants are supposed to die and come back next year. This may not sound like a good thing, but it is. This means that extreme drought or extreme cold is no trouble. Perennials usually come back from the roots, but some may also seed out, giving you twice the opportunity for their return. Other perennials are actually biennials, meaning they set up their green vegetative growth in the first year, establish a root system, and then they flower the second year. For the simplicity of today's podcast, I won't go into any more details on perennials, biennials, or plants that just seed out, but be aware that my list of perennials may also include the biennials and wildflowers, which typically do seed out year after year in order to return. My favorites for Houston include Plains and Landsleaf Coreopsis, which are the beautiful yellow or yellow and brown wildflowers you may find along the highway in spring. This plant is sometimes referred to as tick seed. 
Lanceleaf Coreopsis is all yellow, like a tiny yellow-centered black-eyed Susan, which is also a great option as well. And Plains Coreopsis reminds me of Mexican Hat from a distance, which is another Texas wildflower. Other Houston favorites include Indian Blanket. Indian Blanket has fantastic red-pink to yellow gradient flowers with dark centers that can be used for dyeing fabrics and has a fantastic fragrance found in many dried potpourris. My experience has been that this plant's green foliage lives through summer and reblooms in fall, but most Texas wildflowers are only known for spring blooms. Coneflower, also known as Echinacea, is a great option for an ornamental garden, but you should also consider it for your medicinal tea garden because Echinacea is now becoming a popular home remedy once again. Other bloomers include wine cup, bee balm, which have many other common names because it also goes by lemon mint or minarda, Indian paintbrush, Texas blue bonnet, which is related to lupine that grows in northern climates, primrose or buttercup, and lobelia. A few other favorites include Texas lantana, red salvia gregii, mealy blue sage, also known as salvia farinacei, milkweed, red columbine, which is native, although Texas gold columbine is usually what I find commercially sold in February. A less popular flower for summer and fall is the Maximilian sunflower, but it's a great option to attract migratory birds in late fall through winter. Some other fall bloomers include fall aster, which can grow into a four foot by four foot shrub in a single season. Greg's mist flower, which you can find in purple or white flowering, but more frequently, I tend to find it in purple, and goldenrod, which can be mistaken for a ragweed, but it is not. There are a few perennials that I didn't mention, but these seem to be the ones that I find the easiest in the Houston area and that people are more willing to use. There is one adapted plant in Houston that I want to mention because I honestly think it is so well adapted to the area. It's not very invasive and I think it's a superstar in the garden that gets overlooked. The softleaf yucca handles both freezing weather and heat. And although it does love full sun conditions, I grow this plant in part shade with evening sun in a location that almost every other landscape plant attempt refuses to grow in. This location has the worst compacted soils, but the softleaf yucca has stood proud for almost a decade. This plant actually grew six feet tall over the course of five years, so I chose to cut it down several years ago, and I wanted a different option. But after six months, three new baby plants called pups grew from the root system and actually survived the big Texas freeze in 2021 as those baby plants. I transplanted two of them, left one in its place, and now that plant is about two and a half feet wide. I love how hardy this plant is. It is fast growing, but not aggressively so, and it has this beautiful blue-green foliage and strappy leaves, making it a plant that I don't have to trim. When it does flower, it has a beautiful spike of white creamy flowers, and I think it's a great option. It definitely gives you a little bit of a Southwest vibe when it flowers especially, but for the most part, it's just a beautiful ornamental looking plant. Now there are some native and adapted plants that people use frequently that I think you should think twice about before using in Houston. Agave is one of them. Some agave plants are native to Texas, 
but Houston's frequent rainfall and occasional freezing temperatures may convince you to steer clear of this plant. Overwatering an extremely drought-tolerant plant like agave can actually lead to root rot. If the root rot doesn't kill your agave, the next stressful event like a frost or freeze probably will. Houston's 50 plus inches of rain each year is a little more than agave can handle. So who may still want to plant agave? If you live outside of Northwest Houston in an area of Texas that is naturally drier or has excellent drainage, this might be a good option for you. You can also grow this plant in pots or in an area that's high enough on your property that you not only have excellent drainage, but you're outside of standing water. Just make sure that with any location that you plant this agave, you do not accidentally overwater it in addition to natural rainfall. What I want to make clear is that most native plants for the Houston area don't need any additional watering because we have so much rainfall to begin with, but agave roots are just hurt by our normal rainfall anyways. Keep this in mind when you're investing in your plant if you cannot live without the agave. Texas sage is a really popular plant for many areas of Texas, but does it work for Houston? There are many positives with the Texas sage plant. It's evergreen, it's drought tolerant, it flowers. Some varieties have uniquely colored silver blue foliage. It's dubbed the barometer plant because it can flower with changes in barometric pressure. And well, that's all great, except that sometimes drought tolerant plants hate Houston's endless rainy seasons. I have personally tried Texas sage year after year in different growing conditions or environments throughout Houston, and this plant just doesn't last more than a couple years before our natural heavy rainfall or additional supplemental watering from irrigation systems kill the roots. So who should plant this? Well, if you live outside of Northwest Houston, which has a drier climate, as mentioned earlier, this plant is a perfect fit. It also works on properties that don't have low-lying, poor-draining garden areas, and in some gardens that do not have irrigation systems, this may be a great option. Just make sure you have full sun if you're living in Houston or this plant is not gonna be able to dry out. In other areas of Texas, like Austin and Dallas and San Antonio that have regular periods of drought without hurricane seasons, this of course works as well. If you'd like to take a risk with this plant in Houston, just choose the very sunny spot and don't be tempted to water in fall, winter, or spring not even a little bit. Now you've probably seen this vine before. If you've seen that trumpet flower vine it has beautiful coral trumpet blooms and the vine just goes crazy, you may have been looking at trumpet creeper. Trumpet creeper is a native plant and I usually see it in unmaintained areas, in fields or along fence lines in the country. So what's the problem with trumpet creeper? Well, this vine sends out underground runners a long distance from its original base, which makes it not just aggressive, but potentially invasive if it's not controlled. But it has a lookalike that is less aggressive and evasive. Crossvine is a hardy, semi-evergreen vine well-suited for natural landscapes that still gives you a ton of these gorgeous trumpet blooms. The tendrils tend to twine and don't require overly formal supports. So a simple cable is all you need with crossvine when you add this along your fence line. Although they have similar flowers, crossvine can be distinguished from trumpet creeper simply by looking at the arrangement of leaves and tendrils or identifying trumpet creeper's aerial roots. So who should plant 
cross vine because I'm going to tell you right now, you don't want to plant trumpet creeper. Well, anyone with space that wants easy blooms spring through fall. And this plant is well suited to be in hummingbird friendly yards. My next plant is one of my least favorite plants to design with of all time and one that gets requested very frequently, the crepe myrtle. I've done my best to avoid using this plant in my career as a designer. Most people are familiar with crepe myrtles, so let's talk about the negatives only right now. This plant has suckers, and most people are familiar with the suckers, but suckering is an aggressive, evasive habit that people should be concerned about in their yard. Personally, after cutting down a 20-year-old crepe myrtle tree that was filled with aphid issues and never flowered because it was actually planted under other shade trees, and therefore, not only did that exacerbate the aphid problem, but prevented it from flowering, we actually had to burn the tree stump to get rid of this tree. Why? Well, the original owner planted the tree with a piece of rebar as a trunk support. The tree grew around the rebar, and we couldn't finish cutting down the trunk with the metal inside. So the trunk was burned into nothing. Next year's suckers popped up about 10 feet away in several locations around the original stump. Lots of little crepe myrtles. We mowed, more suckers appeared. We mowed again, and for two years, we did this process. Then we started to burn the suckers. Finally, after years of trying to destroy the tree, we succeeded. I love a fighter in the garden, but this was a little more than I bargained for. I certainly did not want to mow around a grove of tree suckers forever. And there are better options for ornamental trees that actually flower. This tree was not mentioned earlier as a native, but the Texas redbud, which loses its leaves like the crepe myrtle, is fast growing, just like the crepe myrtle, but it's less aggressive. Another option, also not mentioned earlier, is the vitex tree. This tree is becoming borderline invasive in certain areas of Texas where it is naturalized, but a single landscape tree is very harmless for a homeowner. This tree also loses its leaves, grows quickly, and has blooms. I personally prefer a fruit tree to a landscape tree in my yard, and if you feel the same way, a pineapple guava is evergreen with small flowers and just beautiful foliage. It also happens to have edible fruit, which is just small guava fruit. I also think the Asian persimmon makes an excellent landscape tree. It is an adapted tree variety, but it has gorgeous fall color as the fruit hangs on the tree in December and it turns from orange to brilliant red. Spiderwort is a native plant that you've probably seen before, but I highly recommend you take caution before using it. If you've heard of Purple Heart or Wandering Jew or maybe Tree of Scantia, these are usually the names associated with the these are usually the names associated with the purple ornamental spiderwort, but the green spiderwort is a native, and all of these variations are extremely invasive, coming back so aggressively from the roots in spring that you won't be sure if you want to keep growing it. Each segment can grow roots as it trails along the ground, and you must dig up every segment and root to eradicate this plant if you decide you don't like it. Because spiderwort is a native plant, and I live on native acreage, this plant is found everywhere on my property. It actually invades my in-ground vegetable garden on a regular basis, which is so frustrating to me. Otherwise, I don't really mind that it's in the native sections that are usually left alone. Anywhere where I mow, this plant can live and survive and is 
untouched by the mower blades. So who should plant this? Well, if you want a fast growing ground cover and do not care that this plant can take over, then it's actually a great option. I've also used this plant in ornamental pots or hanging baskets because it makes a great trailing plant. And the purple heart version is gorgeous. Texas betony is an interesting perennial ground cover. Also a native, betony is an aggressive spreader from the mint family. And if you're familiar with growing mint, you understand what I'm talking about. Parts of the plant can be used for medicinal purposes, and it comes back without fail year after year. But it's a bit intense and weedy looking in an ornamental garden because the flowers grow a little too tall for most yards. I personally let betony grow in the lawn, not because I choose to, but because it will be growing in the lawn whether I want it to or not. But it does have flower stalks that are a bee magnet, and I accept the trade-off. If you have room for an unmowed section in your yard and you want something that you can easily mow if you do get tired of it, betony is perfectly fine. However, if you grow it in your ornamental garden, removal will require digging out every section of root, just like with other mint family spreading plants. This plant being on my no list is going to be a bit controversial. Texas mountain laurel is a tree that I absolutely love. It's the statement tree flanking each side of Texas A&M's academic building off of Academic Plaza, and it blooms with large purple clusters of artificial grape-smelling flowers for about a week or two in spring. It's a short season, but it's awesome. I like to grow these from seed and share with friends in the Houston area, but it's not a great purchase for your ornamental landscape garden, for the same reasons that I won't recommend growing Texas sage in the area. Basically, I wouldn't plan your whole garden around this tree if you live in Houston or the Gulf Coast. Texas mountain laurel is very slow growing and not in love with Houston's heavy rainfalls. However, this plant doesn't mind heat, drought, or freezing weather and is great for other areas of Texas. In Houston, if you're willing to plant this in a large pot in full sun or a high point in your yard that drains well, go ahead and give it a try. If you do see this plant outside of Houston, it's usually a stately tree. But in Houston, expectations should be a little bit less. You may see it looking more like a slender shrub. Sometimes it's an understory tree. In those types of stressful conditions, especially being overwatered in Houston or in heavy shade, it's really unlikely this plant is going to flower at all. And honestly, even though the Texas mountain laurel is evergreen, if it's not flowering, I just don't see the point in having it in your yard. Now, many plants were not included in this episode today, and I'm sure you'll hear more about them in later episodes, or they were already mentioned in previous ornamental landscape episodes in this podcast series. A rule of thumb for selecting ornamental plants for your garden that can handle extremely cold weather is to look for a plant that is suited for your USDA hardiness zone and at least one hardiness zone cooler than where you live. This will help increase the chances your plant can survive without your assistance before a freeze. And don't forget to take a photo and digitally store your plant tags when you buy a new plant. The variety of your plant may make the difference between you worrying before a freeze or you resting with ease. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, let me know. You can find me on Instagram and all my contact information is in the episode description. For clarifications or additional information on anything discussed in this episode, join me for Q&A Fridays in the stories section on Instagram. This is where all your questions can be answered. To learn how to correctly plant an ornamental woody shrub, you can watch a demonstration on my YouTube channel named How and When to Plant Woody Shrubs in Zone 9, or 
click on the link included in the episode description. Thanks so much for learning with me today and have a great week.